Welcome to Solid Rock. My name is Matt. If you're visiting or new, I'd love to, to get to meet you. So stop me after our service and introduce yourself if you want. Don't feel obligated. I understand that not everybody may want to meet me. So for those who maybe weren't with us last week, we spent some time working our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we saw Paul sort of pit the Corinthians against the Macedonians in a friendly way, of course. He, he was trying to feed a little bit of that healthy, competitive spirit to encourage generosity from the Corinthians on behalf of Christians in the city of Jerusalem. So remember at the time, Jerusalem was experiencing a famine, and so Christians in the church there were suffering. They were suffering from poverty, hunger, and the like, things associated with famine. And Paul says, look, you are one body, and since you are one body, out of your abundance, you have a responsibility to help ease the burden of people in Jerusalem. You don't have to fix this issue for them, but you do need to carry your portion of their weight. Well, today we are going to see that competitive spirit come out of Paul once again, only this time it's personal has to do with him. I don't know, it reminds me of an old Emerald Nuts commercial. Does anybody remember those commercials? No. Okay, I'm going to have to explain this then, and it's going to be quite complicated. They were really popular when I was in college, and so they would take the acronym for Emerald Nuts, E-N, and then they would develop a completely random and arbitrary adjective-noun connection with those same letters, E-N. So here are some examples. Evil navigators, encouraging Norwegians, C-E-N, extreme nurses. And they would say that those types of people love emerald nuts. It was really silly, but my favorite one depicted two old men spinning around in shopping carts at a grocery store. Both of the old men were named Norman. And they were just declaring at the top of their voices, I am the greatest Norman. The other one would respond, no, I am a greater Norman than you are. I'm the greatest Norman that ever lived. And upon first glance at the passage we're going to read today, that's kind of what I envision with Paul. The Apostle Paul spinning around in a shopping cart, proclaiming, I am the greatest Paul that ever lived. But I think as we get to the end of this section, we're going to discover that there's something underneath the surface of Paul's apparent arrogance here. So let's see what that might be. We're going to begin reading 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting. So something has already taken place prior to this where apparently his arrogance is coming through. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I must go on boasting, he says. It's pointless. There's nothing to be gained by it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Maybe you've known people like that. I know I shouldn't tell you this about that person, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I know I shouldn't say this. Well, then don't say it. You've already admitted that you shouldn't do it, so don't say it. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. Now, arrogance and self-boasting was despised in the ancient world as much as it is today. But at times, there was a feeling that that sort of self-boasting might be necessary if you're in an argument in order to prove the point that you're trying to make. And Paul apparently thinks this occasion is one of those times. He says, I shouldn't do this. I, I 
don't want to. It probably isn't going to be productive. But I'm going to do it anyway. I must. I, I don't really have a choice, choice because this is going to help me make this point. Now, to understand that impulse that Paul is feeling to go on boasting, we actually need to back up to the previous chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we find Paul begin talking about a group of opponents of his in the city of Corinth. There's a group of people working against him. He admits that he regards these people as false prophets. He says they are presenting a Christ who is different than the Christ that Paul himself proclaims. And those opponents of Paul's are attempting to poison the well, so to speak. That They are trying to discredit Paul and his work among the church so that he would lose influence. And so Paul is feeling the need to push back against those opponents. And he does that throughout chapter 11 and much of chapter 12. And he decides to use his opponent's own rhetorical tool of comparison. So his opponents in Corinth are apparently comparing themselves to Paul to keep Paul down, to destroy his influence while building themselves up. And so Paul says, all right, I'll play this game of comparison. But in the end, we find that he plays that game of comparison, but turns that game upside down to reveal the false motives of those who are attacking him, those that he says are disguised as apostles of Jesus. But he does humor them for a while. He goes down this road of comparison and boasting, but he himself admits in chapter 11 that this is a fool's boast. This is a boast of folly, and in that he indicates that he understands that this is all silly, but he goes ahead and does what they are doing. So apparently his opponents were comparing themselves to Paul in order to justify their own authority, and Paul says, look, all of the things that they are boasting about I can boast about that too. I am the greatest Paul that ever lived. And so he lists some of the things that they're boasting about. Hebrews, Israelites, children of Abraham, ministers of Christ. And Paul says, I can place a check mark in all of those boxes. Then he goes on and forgive my modesty, but I'm greater in all of those regards than they are. But then he does something quite strange. He shifts the conversation and begins listing hardships that he had faced as qualifications. So his opponents were using all of these strengths and all of these successes to compare themselves to Paul. And Paul humors them and goes down that road, but then begins to list his suffering. He goes down the list. Imprisonment, countless floggings on the brink of death. Says, I was in danger in cities, I was in danger in the wilderness, in danger at the hands of humans, in danger at the hands of nature. He says, I've been hungry and thirsty, naked, poor, I've been cold and spent sleepless nights suffering from anxiety. He says, I am way weaker than they are. I'm under way more pressure, I'm suffering. Far more. So if you want to force me into this game of comparison, those are the things that I really want to boast about. But then we get to chapter 12, and he says, but I'll go on a little bit more and boast about the stuff that they are. They boast of revelations. They boast of these rapturous spiritual experiences. Well, let me share my own. 
Verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So again, we find Paul recounting some of his experiences, these revelations and visions in an incredibly vague way. He begins in the third person as though he's telling us about one of his neighbors or a man that he once met, but it becomes clear by the end of this section that the man who was caught up into the third heaven that he's talking about is Paul himself. Now, I understand that as products of the Enlightenment, this whole notion of visions and revelations, these super spiritual experiences may seem archaic and may seem irrelevant for us, but Paul is a man who claims to have regularly experienced this sort of things. He talks about it personally. We see Luke in the book of Acts recount some of these experiences that Paul had, and so we at least need to address this a little bit, I think. And I get that some of you may have been raised in a tradition where these sort of super spiritual experiences were very common and very weird, maybe to the point of being abused. And so anytime you hear something in this vein, your guard automatically goes up. Others may come from a tradition where this thing, this sort of thing never occurred. And so whenever you read something like this, you just uh, push it off as you know, primitive spirituality or fairy tale spirituality. So whether we are talking about miracles that defy natural laws or dreams and visions like Paul is talking about here or some other supernatural experience in the presence of Jesus, I would just caution us with this. I don't think that we should allow our enlightened bias or our lack of personal experience in some of these regards, or the abuse of others to cause us to relegate an account like this to the level of fairy tale spirituality. I think if we choose to do that, inevitably we end up ignoring what texts like this communicate about our faith. And we have to understand that Paul was a thoroughly Jewish man. And none of what we are reading this morning would have been altogether unusual from a Jewish perspective. This was very common with the Hebrew prophets. We see it all over the place in Jewish apocalyptic literature. These supernatural experiences were important within the Jewish faith and at times helped keep God's people close to his heart. So I don't want to spend too much time on the details that Paul is relating here because I don't really think that's the point. And some of the details that he relates are a bit fuzzy. And he admits that. He says, this man was caught up into the third heaven, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, and I don't really care, but this is what happened. Caught up to the third heaven. Now, in Jewish thought, there were multiple heavens, or to put it crudely, there were multiple levels in the cosmos, and paradise or the new earth, which is what all of creation was longing and groaning for and working towards, paradise, new Eden, would eventually be here on earth, but 
for the time being, it was in the heavens. Now, for Paul, the third heaven, apparently, which would have been the highest level of, in these levels in the cosmos, it would have been the highest level for some in Jewish imagination, that's where paradise, that's where the new Eden would have been, and that's where Paul is taken and encounters the living Christ. But when he's talking about this to the Corinthians, he remains really vague. He withholds all of the specific details, which can seem really frustrating for us as students of the Bible. But again, I think that's intentional on Paul's part, uh, at least in part because this sort of boasting is futile. It doesn't do anything to help prove his point. It means nothing. So he's walking down this road of competition and comparison, but only to reveal how silly it really is and then to set up what he's actually interested in boasting in. So we begin reading in verse 5. He says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, kind of, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He says, I will not boast in my weakness, a weakness which has presumably been used by his opponents as fuel for the fire to further discredit Paul. He's saying, look, Christians in Corinth, look at all of these weaknesses that Paul has. Look at all the hardships that he is facing. You can't really trust him to lead you. The hand of God can't really be upon this man. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times I pleaded about the Lord, with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So we find here that famous thorn in the flesh passage from Paul, which he explains was allowed to persist, was carried by a messenger of Satan, he says, to harass him. Now I think importantly for Paul, God isn't the source of the thorn he was suffering from, but he understands that it is allowed in order that Paul might not become conceited. He says, I was given this thorn in the flesh, and then in typical cryptic Pauline fashion, he leaves it at that. Now, what might this thorn be? Who knows? Somebody tells you they know for sure what the thorn is, just stop listening to them. It seems like every time I return to this passage and read a, a commentary or an article that references this passage, I find a new theory in regard to what that thorn was. If we took time to talk about all of the ideas that people have about this thorn, we would be here all day. Find everything from moral or psychological turmoil and temptation all the way to physical illness. I've seen some people even propose that it was sexual addiction or that it was haunting guilt from his past that he spent persecuting the church, or maybe it is his failing eyesight or a disease or some other physical injury. Now, I tend to think that, so, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you my opinion. 
even though it's probably wrong, but I'll go ahead and let you know. I tend to think that it's probably more likely, given the context of the boasting in this passage, that the thorn in his flesh was the opposition he was facing in Corinth. I, I think it makes sense, given some of the language that he employs to talk about the current hardship, where he compares it to a thorn. That's language that we find used in the Old Testament to talk about Israel's opponents at different times. So that's my opinion, but who knows? It's probably wrong. All we know for sure is that whatever this thorn was, it was uncomfortable for Paul. It caused anguish. It was unpleasant. He was suffering in some way because of this thorn, and he really wants God to help him out to take the knife and to remove the thorn from his skin. He asks for deliverance, and he does it three times. And I think that's a really normal reaction when we're faced with suffering. I think it's even a very Christian impulse. But one thing we learn as Paul relates his experience with this thorn is that even if deliverance from the thorn doesn't come when we ask for deliverance, God is still faithful. It seems really simple, but it's actually an incredible thing for us to wrap our minds around. Even if the thorn isn't removed, God continues to walk with us and sustain us. And more importantly, there is grace for today. And perhaps that thorn, whatever it is that is causing pain or hurting or leading to anxiety, perhaps that thorn is making us more aware of that grace that is there today. Perhaps grace would go unnoticed. Or perhaps grace would continue to be pushed to the back burner of our minds without that thorn. So for Paul, paradoxically, that thorn that he was given, the thing that he most wanted deliverance from, was a gift. Now on the surface, that doesn't seem to make sense. But I think we at least need to be open to that possibility. How can a thorn, something that produces suffering of some kind for us, how can that be a gift? Well, I think we find a hint when we see Paul tell us about God's response when he appeals for deliverance. In verse 9, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, those who insist that the Lord will heal every illness we have immediately when we ask for deliverance and in exactly the way we have asked probably don't appeal to this text, right? Because we find Paul praying three times, and three times the answer to his prayer is no. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to heal you. I'm not going to deliver you from this suffering or take the thorn away, but I am going to do something better for you. I'm going to allow this thorn, this suffering, to make you more aware of my grace. And an awareness of the grace of God is far more valuable 
than deliverance from the temporal challenge Paul was facing. Growing in our awareness of God's grace in our lives is more valuable than anything we could hope for in terms of our present circumstances. Now, that's it's not always easy to allow that truth to become firmly planted in our hearts with deep roots. But I think one thing we learn from this passage is that hopefully our weaknesses, if we can get to the point where we embrace those weaknesses, hopefully they will soften our hearts and make a hospitable home for the grace of God that is already all around us. You know, we talk about this quite frequently, but if you're anything like me, you may need frequent reminders of this fact that as followers of Jesus, we are called to embrace weakness. We are called to embrace weakness. And not just because, well, if we embrace our weakness, eventually it's going to be turned into a strength. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. We embrace weakness because Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins the Beatitudes in this way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I heard a pastor in New York in commenting on this specific Beatitude say that the poor in spirit have nothing to prove, Nothing to protect, nothing to possess, because the kingdom is already their possession. It reminds me of what Paul's going through here. Nothing to prove. He'll compare and play the game of competition, but only to prove this point. Nothing to prove, nothing to protect, nothing to possess. And I would add to that that the poor in spirit have nothing to prove, nothing to protect, nothing to possess because the kingdom is already theirs and that is enough. That's enough. You, you don't have to be strong physically. You don't have to be strong in terms of influence. You don't have to have a perfect body free of physical ailments. You don't have to have the most skill. You don't have to be the most put together. You don't have to command respect when you walk into a room. You don't have to strive to be the biggest and the best or have the most because you already have the grace of God. You already have the grace of God and that's enough. I think this is a fundamental part of the gospel that we often discard because we don't want to be the weak ones. We don't want to be the weak ones. That's not admired socially. We don't want to allow our weaknesses to be exposed because then we might lose the upper hand in some of the relationships we have. But Paul says, my weakness is all that I have. Without my weakness, I have nothing because I would be deficient in my understanding of God's grace in my life. Christ's strength is the only strength I have. It's not a popular idea. I think we tend to think, well, I'm a man or I'm a woman and I have innate strength because of that fact. Or, or maybe we would even acquiesce to embrace weakness if we thought that it was a tool that would eventually lead to strength. But that's not the type of strength that Paul is talking about here. 
Weakness is not how we get strong, per se, but rather weakness is how Christ's strength is revealed in us. Does that make sense, the the distinction that I'm trying to make there? Paul is arguing that his weakness is still there. It, It hasn't left. He didn't embrace it for a while and then it turned into a strength. He is still weak, but weakness allowed him to decrease and allowed Christ in him to increase. I think biblical strength across the board for men, for women, strength for a follower of Jesus is found in the ability to endure suffering, not the power to eliminate or carry ourselves out of a difficult situation. Chris Green, who's a professor at Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, he said, Christ came so that we could exchange our wealth, not for his wealth, but for his poverty, which is the same as wealth. Do you see that distinction? We end up with strength, but probably not strength as we first imagined it. We end up with strength, but again, not our own strength that we have grown into. We end up with the strength of Christ. And that is the only strength that will not turn us into monsters. And not monsters in a scary movie sense. But the strength of Christ, made perfect in our weakness, is the only type of strength that will not turn us into monsters in the fact that we rely on our strength to get ahead or to keep others down or to exploit others or turn others into an enemy when they don't align with us. Paul says, I was given this weakness that I might not become conceited. It is really difficult to be poor in spirit, to stay humble. It is difficult to be meek without an awareness of our weaknesses. Is it possible? Sure, I guess. But is it likely that we will be able to put on the humility of Christ without weakness? Probably not. I don't care if we sing to ourselves all day, every day, Kendrick Lamar's hit single, Be Humble. It's not going to work. Humility is inaccessible without coming to terms with our personal weakness. Only when we accept our weakness can we begin to discover the sustaining power of Christ's strength. And Christ's strength is the only strength that enables us to endure difficulty, to allow that thorn to stay firmly embedded in our flesh as difficult and as painful as it may be, and yet we can still be at peace, even when nothing around us seems peaceful, even when nothing around us seems right or seems fair for us, we can still be at peace. This is how Paul concludes the section in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
So this is it. Embracing weakness isn't the path that eventually leads us to strength. No, we are strong in the weakness. That weakness may never disappear, and yet we can have a strength because it is Christ himself carrying us and making his grace known to us, in us, and through us, even in the ugliness of the hardship we face. Eugene Peterson has famously said, we practice our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. Practice our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. What a beautiful summation of the major themes that I think Paul is communicating to the Corinthians here. He says we could go back and forth ad nauseum about who is better qualified as an apostle of Jesus Christ to lead the church. We, we could continue to provide these exhaustive lists of our accomplishments and strengths. He says that's all pointless. Paul says my weakness my difficulty, the hardships I face, that's the only resume builder I have. It's all I have because only in my weakness is Christ clearly seen. Kevin, if you all want to come up. We are going to transition to a time of sharing the Eucharist together where we take our minds in our hearts to the weakness of Christ expressed in his death on the cross. And we trust that as he invites us and as we respond to his invitation, that he is providing exactly what we need to nourish us and to strengthen us in those parts of our lives where we are the weakest. And so as we come to the table, I want to leave us with this question. What would it look like if we made it a habit of outdoing one another, not in terms of our successes or our strengths or how accomplished we are, but what if we made it a habit of outdoing one another in terms of our weakness? Not, not a self-flagellation or constant negative self-talk, not so that we're living in the state of constant discouragement, but so that we might live with a greater awareness of the grace of God in our lives. In that in all of the places where we are weak, Christ's strength, which carries us through it, would be known. Would you stand this morning? We're going to come to the table believing that Jesus meets us here. Steve, would you join us in serving communion as well? As we come to the table, if you have a, an area of need in your life, we would invite you after you have taken the elements, after you have celebrated the grace of Christ, we invite you to the back if you'd like prayer. So the invitation this morning, come to the table and taste the grace of God in this cup.
come to the table and taste the grace of God in this bread. His grace is all around you already. You might need to be reminded of that. Come to the table. Be made aware of his grace once again. It is sufficient. Sufficient for whatever you're going through. For that thorn, for the pain, come to the table.